Hello and welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Hello, Note Doctors listeners. Today's guest is Dr. John Mortensen. Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit more about John? John Mortensen is a leader in the international revival of historic keyboard improvisation. He improvises complete concerts in historic styles. He is a Fulbright Global Scholar in Historic Improvisation, a Steinway artist, and now serves as professor of piano at Cedarville University in Ohio. This is such a fun conversation for especially Jen and I because we actually had Dr. Mortensen as a professor and his insights are just really, really great. They are tremendous. And uh, yeah, it was like a flashback to our undergraduate days. And we both took a class with him that the students affectionately called Funky Boards, but the real name of the class was Functional Keyboard Skills. So anyway, Dr. John Mortensen is wonderful and it's a great chat that we have. The thing is though, is is uh, the more options you give, the more everybody screws up and uh, gets lost. And so pedagogically, one is constantly saying, whoa, 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 whoa. L- let's stay within what you can do really well. Okay, let's only build up as high as it's stable. Okay, so, and if it starts wobbling like this, probably something down low is, is not really square. You know, the bricks are not actually in there. So let's go back down there and let's sand that and you know, make sure it really fits. So that actually pedagogically is more of a priority than telling them all these amazing super tricks. Uh, more important just to say, yeah, actually your RO sucks and you, you have to go back and review that. You know, that's usually what the case is. So today, our very special guest is, in fact, a little bit even more special um, today. It's Dr. John Mortensen. Uh, As our listeners probably don't know, Jen and I went to the same undergraduate uh, university, and while we were there, we actually had Dr. Mortensen as our professor, and he was my piano professor, and full disclosure, I was a pretty mediocre piano student, Um, (laughs) and so... um, you know, if we slip into saying, we slip into calling you Dr. Mortensen, you know, that's just uh, <laughs> us reverting back to our student selves. And um, so we wanted to start, though, by talking about um, historic improvisation, because that's what you're here to talk with us about, and you have a book about it. So tell us about a little bit about what is that? How is that different than, you know, just improvisation or jazz improvisation? And then how did you get started into that? You're a concert pianist, so did you just wake up one morning you know, saying, I'm tired of memorizing Chopin, let's do something else. <laughs> you know, how does that happen? Uh, well, thanks for inviting me, and it's great to talk to, to you guys uh, and, and to meet Ben for the first time. Um, <clears throat> for me, yeah, it really did come out of a sense of malaise. Um, hmm. just, I, I remember sitting down and, you know, like most pianists, you know, you sort of design programs. And I came to a point where I was trying to list things I wanted to play. And I love that music and I will always play that music, but it just, the sameness of it all struck me. And, and at one point I, I heard somebody say something about a million pianists all over the world, all playing the same 100 compositions for the last 100 years. And, and I just felt this heaviness about the, the, the stasis of, of you know, the, the whole performing culture uh, versus like the dynamism of other types of music of jazz and pop music and rock and roll is constantly changing. It's interesting and it's always new. And, uh, you know, to go and hear the Beethoven Pathetique Sonata yet again, it's a great piece. It's worth hearing. Absolutely nothing new is going to happen. Absolutely nothing. I, I don't care. Mm. You know, somebody says, oh, I have this new interpretation. Oh, fine. You held the fermata on page three for like one more second. <laughs> and this changes the world. You know, I just anyway. Um, so so I started to feel the sameness of, of classical piano performing culture. And I had been studying jazz and actually playing occasionally with a trio. 
and then adding um, jazz pieces to concert programs, not you know just somebody's arrangement of Gershwin, but actually learning to improvise over changes on the fly. And in that process, it started to occur to me that there was not necessarily any barrier, insurmountable barrier, between what I was doing with jazz and potentially you know, playing classical music in the same way. So that kind of started me, and the, the, the entry point was variation form, where you have an established looping chord progression, right? And so what I started to do, I, I was using Handel, the Chaconne in G major, HWV 435, and uh, I, I would sneak in a few improvised variations and not tell anybody. You know, because they don't know the music, they don't know anything. They're just audience people. But um, and, and I would just see how it goes. Like, can't can I actually get away with this? But I won't tell anybody because that's dangerous. Uh, once I felt okay doing it, I would then tell them I was going to do it and say, but you, but I won't say when. And you have to try to guess. And I would see if I could mm. blend it in. You know. Yeah. And then from there, I'm like, well, why can't I just do the whole chaconne? What was what's stopping me? Um, once that started to work, I said, okay, let's really swan dive into this. What if you're going to play Toccatas? What about a French overture? What about Dance Suite? What about the big one is Fugue? Um, and so several years of work into it, um, I you know, came upon a whole tradition that I didn't know about and began studying it, and that paid back. So to me, there are implications for musicianship and theory and musicology, all that stuff comes out of it. But actually, mm -hmm. all I was trying to do was find something interesting to do in concert. That's all I was doing. <laughs> and uh, anyhow, here we are. So. so in the intro to your book, you say that our sort of traditional music education is actually not traditional enough mm -hmm. because composers before this would have been trained in improvisation. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit? Yeah, um, <clears throat> the... Well, the name, the name that you probably know is Robert Yerdigan, uh, who wrote Music in the Gallant Style, and then his new book is Child Composers in the Old Conservatories. And Yerdigan gives great perspective on this. He, he says the, the modern theory course, you know, two years of theory, two years of oral skills, is really a dilettante kind of um, liberal arts dip-your-toe-in-music approach where you, you don't have time to learn the musicianship from the older Neapolitan school. So instead of learning music, you're just gonna learn about music. And the illustration he uses is mm. taking an astronomy class. You're not really going to space. You're just gonna read stories about space. And so he says, you know, Roman numerals and harmony, these are all just stories for amateurs about counterpoint, but they're not actually gonna do it. Um, now that is overstated a little because um, Roman numeral based modern theory is not just dilettante, you know, it's not just to learn about it so you're informed. You know, you, there's some practical applications for sure. Um, but I do now look at it that way that um, it, it doesn't, it, it's, it's too abstract. Um, it doesn't really tell you the truth about how most of those musicians were thinking. Um, it, superimposes root motion on a lot of music that was not thinking in terms of root motion, uh, Roman numerals and root motion and inversion, which um, is totally alien to the 18th century, um, only starts filtering in in, in um, you know, the, the very early 19th century. Uh, and so it, it kind of gives people um, a, a, a wrong picture of how to think about certain types of music. Root motion, in, root motion and inversion in particular is death to improvising in an 18th century style. Because mm -hmm. if you have to think in terms of root motion, most chords are inverted, right? I mean, just mm -hmm. go through a score. How many of them are 5-3 are versus something else, 6-4-3, 6-5 and stuff? So if you have to think in terms of root motion, you are constantly uninverting a bunch of harmonies to try to figure out what the root is. So like, wait, that's in the bass, but that's not the important note. So the real, the real secret root is hidden right in the middle of the guts of the chord. Okay, now that I know what that root is, now I can think about its harmonic function. Well, it's too late. You know, the music just died and stopped. Um, and so thinking in terms of root motion actually is paralysis. So one of the first things we do in historic improvisation to learn to play an 18th century style is learn a different way of thinking about the bass 
and the associated harmonies that are going on above it. And we, you have to know Roman numerals, you have to understand roots, but we kind of leave them aside the more advanced we get. Yeah, it's always interesting to tell your theory students that after they've learned Roman numerals, to tell them that Bach didn't have yeah. Roman numerals. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't, exactly. They didn't even exist yeah. in, a, in an analytical sense until much later. Yeah. And so we kind of, it's interesting how we lock into that yeah. and try to use that kind of later analytical tool for something that's just not appropriate at all. Yeah, and, and actually it, it slows everything down. Like it's, it makes it really hard and it doesn't have that much of a payoff. Um, certainly not for, for um, playing continual or performing or improvising. There's no payoff for thinking in terms of Roman numerals. So the question is, what do you think about? Um, in your book, you talk about um, rule of the octave, yeah. and, um, and that's certainly something that's more baseline driven than, than chords. Yeah. And so, um, and that seems to be an entry point, at least into a way that you can start to improvise yeah. in this style. Exactly, um, it really is built around bass motion. And the idea there is that, um, and, and the way that the, the Neapolitan tradition worked, what I call the Partimento tradition, is that they would learn, they would start with rule of the octave so that they always had a default harmonization. So no matter what the bass did, if you don't have anything cooler to do, you can at least do RO and it will sound like real music and you'll pass the test. So you can quickly, quickly accompany an aria or you can quickly set up a you know concerto movement or whatever you need to do just RO and you're done. By the way, I was in Lithuania last year and I was at the National Academy and I went to a concert and someone played uh, one of these super virtuoso pieces by Sarasate, you know, one of these like faux Paganini mm -hmm. things. And it was good, you know, that's great conservatory. But, um, and I started laughing in the back row because the, the accompaniment was entirely rule of the octave. Beginning to end, <laughs> every single thing, you know, it was just like, so off the shelf, out of a can. I just thought, you could write this in like four minutes. Anyway, so the first thing is you, you learn ascending and descending scales um, and, and RO, major and minor, and the, and the different versions. Then typically uh, the teachers will start and, and they'll say, okay, that's one thing you can do if the scale is in the bass. Um, <clears throat> here are some other things. So five, six for ascending, seven, six for descending. 876, 1098, so these other scale harmonizations, um, chromatic motions, which, you know, ascending is usually built around 5-6, descending is built around 7-6, um, and then the moti, the, the sequential patterns. And, and so if you take um, down a third up a step, which I refer to as cas cascade because it's like little cascading waterfalls, um, they have a, about... 10 different solutions for Cascade in the Neapolitan tradition, 10 harmonic solutions for that. Um, and depending on who's teaching and what era and, and so on, you can, you can round up about 10. And so students would study these, they would sing them, they would play them in, in Partimento, they would write them into their pieces, they'd be singing them in the choir or wherever they were working, they'd be playing continual, and they just absorb this stuff. Now, now the, the beauty of the system is that when you see something on, pa on paper like a cascade in the bass, if you've studied, you immediately know 10 solutions to this. And most of them involve contrapuntal variations where the upper voices are invertible. So it's actually way, way mm -hmm. more, way, way more. Uh, and uh, so it gives you a... I, I, I sort of go out on a limb and I say, you, you actually have a comprehensive knowledge of the harmonic and contrapuntal language of the era. Pretty much everything that can happen can be explained in, in the terms of the Partimento tradition. There's really no harmonic moves you can do that Partimento doesn't prepare you for. So everything that happens, you can immediately hear it and say, oh yeah, I know what that is. So your, your aural skills just go through the roof. It goes crazy. Because you've already played it. You've already played it in multiple keys. You've inverted the voices. You've harmonized it in a different way. You've transposed, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's really what it's based on. And, and um, in most cases, it's not really necessary or helpful to pin this thing to a dissection board and pull its guts apart and say what the root actually is. You just don't need it. 
doesn't really serve any purpose. So that's why <laughs> root motion is so alien to the part of mental tradition. Now, as you talk about all of these, the 10 different options of harmonizing these baselines and all of these um, kind of categories and these different figurations, it seems to be kind of, it could be overwhelming. Yeah. And so one of the things that you mentioned in your book is this uh, Zibaldoni, yeah. which is kind of a way of um, kind of categorizing or, or compiling um, all of these different possibilities. And I found it so interesting because you, you um, have your students do it. You, you have your own Zibaldoni. Mm -hmm and you have your students use it or, or create their own. And so talk about what that is. It's mm -hmm. not something to smooth ice on a, a, a rink. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and, what, and, um, and how it's been useful for you as like a pedagogical tool yeah. for your students. Yeah, exactly. It's just a pedagogical tool. It could be used for really anything. Um, and and uh, the fact that the word is historic, you know, it's, it's just an old... Um, notebook personal notebook um what they might call a commonplace book you carry with you and and when something interesting happens you write it down so a merchant might have one or a shipbuilder who's down at the dock hmm. might be like oh look how they rigged that and you draw a picture of it um <laughs> and and so it's just for a musician the reason i think it's pedagogically cool is because one after you do it for a while, you, you accumulate a lot of these things and you can peruse them, go back through. Oh, yeah, remember that time I heard this cool passage? Um, you can share them with other people. You can say, hey, man, you know, what did, what did you find? Let me show you what I found. Um, but most of all, by having to write by hand, you are forced into sustained interaction with the material that I don't get if I just take a picture of it and put it in a file. Um, it just forces me to slow down and draw ledger lines and draw stems and really think about what this is. And so it stays in my memory. So yeah, it's really, really just the pedagogy of it that I like. There's nothing, there's nothing magical uh, about the, the fact that it's just a notebook, you know? So yeah, I have a couple volumes. I have a couple volumes going on now. And, um, they're not in any particular order. It's just, I start a section when I find something cool. Uh, for example, the, the other day, uh, I was reading Yard again and, um, there were these really bodacious, canonic solutions. Uh, that is a good word that I insist on. Um, the 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 base motion was, I think it was going up a scale, and and uh, one of the harmonic solutions is eight seven six. So you you have an upper voice that starts with an octave. The bass moves up, and now that upper voice is a seventh. It has to resolve to a sixth, and then it jumps to get another octave, and then the bass moves. So you have these constant eight. Seven six eight seven six, uh, and then ten nine eight works the same way. Well, um, Stanislaw Matai, one of the Partimento teachers, um, he had this solution where the upper voices were trading who does the dissonances, and they were canonic. There's these beautiful canonic structures in the upper voices, and I thought that's really cool. And I looked at it for a while, and I thought. I bet you anything they would do the same thing for 7-6 descending. I'm going, in my little Zivaldone, I'm going to figure out how to do it, and I'm going to record it as a prediction that I will eventually find this in some history, like in a piece. <laughs> because if, if an idiot like me, if it occurs to me, and I barely understand Italian music, well, you know, some some... 11 year old kid from Naples definitely figured it out. So I have, you know, that's one thing of my Zibaldoni. It's like, it's this prediction, canonic 7 6 thing, you know, and I'm just keeping it there until the, until the day I find this uh, passage in, in music. So that's the purpose of the Zibaldoni. Yeah, I'm right there with you. And speaking of 11 year old child, I mean, what are your thoughts on, you know, once students get to our institutions? Is it too late at that point, or what should we do at that point? Because we have, you know, 18, 19 year olds coming in, and sometimes later on even in life, which is great, yeah. and sometimes earlier, you know, we have Texas Academy of uh, Math and Science at UNT, and they have, we have students in music for that now. They're even younger. Yeah, well, so, sure. So, what are your thoughts on that? I think, you know, most of us who are in this profession, um, if we stay and survive, it's because we're relentlessly hopeful people. And we love to watch people get it, and uh, whatever level they're on, we we, just, we love it. Um, and, and so the fact that somebody's behind is not necessarily 
the worst disaster because it's fun to help them catch up. Um, so on the one hand, I'm very optimistic and I'm totally ready to help anybody uh, get up to speed. I mean, I, I flunked my piano audition to University of Michigan when I was 18. So um, just goes to show you something. Uh, yeah, I, I just I just did a, a conference session with the University of Michigan. It was so fun because I got to tell um, embarrassing stories about all these faculty that I used to be afraid of. And have it go out, have it go out like on an official U of M platform. It was so fun. Anyway, um, so I'm I'm very hopeful. On on the other hand, you know, I'm super well aware uh, of how rough the music profession is and how delusional young people are about their own potential to fit into it. Um, so I'm pretty rough on them. Uh, just yesterday, I had a student who was playing something that shall remain nameless and uh, had a two against three in it <laughs> and last week the kid couldn't play a two against three and i said if i couldn't play a two against three in a lesson i'd be super embarrassed every professional can play two against three either hand we all understand it we all use it all the time i don't ever want to hear you not able to play a two against three so the kid comes back next week can't play two against three and i said you you have no future in the profession if you don't take this stuff seriously. So I'm, I'm really, really hard on them about um, not coasting along in the comfortable little cocoon of undergrad. And, you know, Paul and Jen, you know, you know, Cedarville's a really comfortable place. Frankly, most undergraduate places are because they're filled with similarly ignorant people who reinforce each other. Um, and so the faculty's <laughs> job is to say, this is fun for these four years, but actually once you get out of here, the, the wind is uh, cold and rough and it's going to blow right in your face and you are not ready. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. I, I, I try to be pretty, I'm pretty blunt actually about. Yeah. Part of the reason I asked is because the night before uh, we recorded this, I was just looking at a way to see if we could integrate some kind of improvisation, not necessarily keyboard improvisation, or that's your specialty, um, into every class period. That way, at least you're coming back to it, and you're not just doing one improvisation and then just leaving yeah. it go for weeks on end, because you just can't uh, acquire, I think, the skills yeah. without coming back to it. You know, uh, Almost every class period, whether it's just five minutes or something, I think it can really be beneficial. So I'm with you yeah. that it's not lost, that we can... Uh, still acquire those skills but it does require a lot of daily routine type activity absolutely daily um built into the fabric of life uh, and and one of the reasons that you find so little that is specifically written about improvisation from the 18th century is because improv was was a side benefit of their larger musicianship curriculum they didn't really have to teach improv they didn't have to find five minutes for it at the end of a class because when you're doing Solfeggio and Partimento, um, you are interacting directly with how music actually works. You're not reciting it off a page. You are, you are creating it. You're transposing it. You're inverting it. You're just doing all this stuff. Um, they were composing. Um, they had to play continuo. Okay, so when you play continuo, you are reconstructing the music from nothing in a way that you're not when you're just reading notation. So they constantly had to do this. And then there were little keyboard things, little prelude, you know, preluding styles and um, other things that just forced them into um, practical job training improvisation. Like they had to or they wouldn't get a hamburger to eat that night. So, so you don't need like 10 easy tricks, you know, try this neat trick in improv. You don't need that because they already know like you're not going to eat yeah. if you don't, if you can't do this. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. So I, we can't really replace that today in our curriculum. Um, there, there's really no way to replace that. Um, and I, I don't know the answer. One of the questions you guys had, had listed in, in the emails preparing for this was, what about the um, current changes in music theory where we're trying to consider non-Western, you know, not a bunch of dead white guys, um, people, you know, minorities and people of color and marginalized groups and all that. Yeah, I'm all for that in, in terms of like respecting their cultures and justice. But the problem that we face is that the more inclusive and broad you get, the less you can actually get any good at anything. 
Um, and all you do is you get a class that's about music. And so you learn a little bit about music, but you don't actually learn to do anything. Uh, and you, you, you simply can't be good at funk and disco and, you know, South African chant, ritual and Chinese this and improvising. You, you have to choose. You just cannot do it all. And the, the classes that do are just going to be kind of fun um, National Geographic documentary classes. You're going to see it, but you're not really going to go there. So that, that's the conundrum that we face is there's pressures on both sides to go in opposite directions. And there's good reasons for both of them. So I, I, don't, I don't see a single yeah. solution for that. The, the thing true. with improvisation is that there's this, you have to own it. And I think that's the struggle yeah. with, um, you know, having like a survey class where you're kind of dotting, bopping around the world. Um, you don't really kind of own yeah. anything in, in the end. You kind of know you're, 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 your mind is broadened, and uh, but you don't own it. And improvisation requires you to own something really deeply. Um, it's not really a question. It's just <laughs> it's an observation. And because of the Zibaldoni, where you're kind of writing things down, you are taking ownership and encouraging your students, regardless of, I guess, whatever profession they're going to, but having this seriousness and discipline to really own it and go out. Because it's not an easy place to succeed right now with music. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. It's very true. Um, and and so I don't. I hope I don't ever say anybody can do this and it's easy. You know, it's it, it's costly. It's so costly, and time consuming and it's slow. Um, the the hopeful thing is that for anyone who wants to put time into it, they can get from here to here and then here to here and here to here. Um, so on my little online group, online school, we have about three hundred people there. And there are retirees who are amateurs, and there are conservatory students, there are conservatory faculty from names of schools that you would know. Um, there's a 10-year-old kid from India who's learning rule of the octave, you know. So everybody's at these wildly different places, just wildly different. Uh, but over time, they all make progress. They all move forward. But that's the key, is that it's not five minutes in a class, uh, and then a quiz, and then you're done. It's it's consistent, consistent, and that, that's really mm -hmm. what it takes. Right. Yeah. You mentioned at the beginning that jazz sort of took you toward this path. Can you? Is there transfer there between jazz improvisation and this type of improvisation? A lot. Do they connect? Yeah, they do. Um, they're they're a nice Venn diagram that has some good overlap. Um, one of the things that that jazz did for me. I was playing a concert, and uh, I think I was going to do a lot of Scarlatti sonatas, like maybe six, which is, you know, as my kid would say, that's a buttload of Scarlatti. And uh, <laughs> so I played a buttload of Scarlatti, and it was fine. I mean, I was ready, I knew it, and I played it, but, you know, I just felt like, okay, every note, get it exactly, exactly right. There's one way through this music, play, do the next correct thing. Uh, so I played it and it was fine, and um, but I just felt that narrowness of it. And then the second half of the concert, I, I, I improvised everything, um, and it was uh, jazz standards, I, I think. And I just remember thinking, at every moment, I can branch out. I could go this way, I could go that way, uh, I could play silence, I could play noise, you know. And I felt what I call this rhizomic feeling of, of the branching out uh, possibilities, and I thought, that is the real difference, the linear versus rhizomic, where the correct way through the canonic standard repertoire thing, there's, there's one way. There's one way. Everything else is a derailment, you know, is a disaster. Mm. Uh, and, and when you improvise, you're constantly choosing this branching. And that's what classical and historic improvisation, or jazz and historic improvisation have in common, is developing this idea of, of being rhizomic. Which, when, uh, particularly for pianists, by the way, this linear thing is so embedded because pianists memorize massive, massive amounts of music. A and yeah. they, don't, they almost don't realize what they're doing to their brain is, is optimizing it for the linear recall. So you tell them, make a choice. And, and they just go, ah, you know, I, I can't. <laughs> uh, and so my, the book is built around uh, giving people some really, really easy 
branching pathways. There's, there's A and there's B. Both of them are great. Both of them are right. You won't get hurt. Just walk up to that fork in the road and, and then do it. Um, because I'm aware of just how uh, like almost neurologically hard it can be for, for players to do that. Yeah, I think a lot of people hit a wall when they first start improvising. I mean, they think that they're going to walk up and make this beautiful improvisation. <laughs> and if it's not, then they're horrible yeah. at improvisation. And it makes me think about when I first improvised in middle school, like we had jazz band and, and our uh, jazz band director would make every single person yeah. improvise. But the requirement for the first improv was that you could only play yep. one note. <laughs> So it was a very safe way of kind yeah. of introducing improvisation. In fact, you didn't even have to change yeah. pitch, you know. So I thought that was really nice, and it made me uh, kind of embrace yeah, it a lot more. You just pretend more. you're a bongo drum player. Just keep hitting that one note. I mean, most of us, most of us can, you know, tap out a fun rhythm. I, that's that's a great right. pedagogical tool. Uh, limiting limiting yeah. the vocabulary and and just making them use rhythm. Yeah, that's actually a great idea. Yeah, and that that limited kind of uh, progression, I guess you start with in the book is that that page one right. progression, the the one two four two five six five one the from the box uh, prelude in C. Talk to us why you chose that progression as an entry point and how you use that in your own teaching. Uh, this type of improvisation. Yeah, the page one. Um, interestingly, it shows up just everywhere. There's a podcast called Reply All which has nothing to do with music. It's, it's about internet culture. And it's, it's a very uh, techno, you know, highly produced, uh, but, but, that, it, but it's there. It's, it's their theme song. Very interesting. <laughs> uh, the reason I used it is because, one, I, I wanted to give uh, a, a satisfying, interesting little harmonic activity that works in various positions of the soprano and works in major and minor, and you can learn it in 24 keys just to start giving people something that they could now transpose and use in a whole bunch of ways. Um, and, and, I, and one of the things I would make people do is um, come back next week and have this in every position in every key. You know, 24 keys. Well, it's pretty shocking if you've never done anything like that before. Uh, it's absolutely a shock to the system. Um, but by the time you're done, you, you, you know how it works and you start noticing voice leading, you know, inner voice. Oh, the inner voice always wants to do that. Okay, cool. I never had to think about that before because I could always just read it off the page and not think about it. Then it's very useful because you can have infinite variations on it and use it to start an improvisation because it's a great opener. So Bach and uh, Beethoven, um, uh, the Hallelujah from Christ and the Mount of Olives. Um, Mozart K503, on and on and on. There's thousands of, of, of uh, instances of it. So then they start recognizing it in music they know, and they go, oh, cool, I know what that is. Well, that makes people happy, and now they want to learn more, and so that's good pedagogy. <laughs> uh, so it, it's just, just to start giving them a feeling of what it's like really to know how music works, just, just with four chords. Um, how different is the experience from from being an on-page musician to starting to learn to be an off-page musician? Yeah. And when you have an improvisation, do you have um, certain key areas that you have in mind? So mm. uh, obviously there are certain keys that you're more likely to choose. I remember being an undergrad student and studying counterpoint and trying to, I think, modulate to like the flat two mm -hmm. or something, trying to write in like an 18 cent. And it was just atrocious <laughs> and terrible. Like, this, is, this isn't working out. And I didn't understand why. Well, obviously, you know. Um, do you have kind of these little markers that you're planning? Uh, or for myself, how do you, uh, for myself I, I, I do it less and less because it, I've just played a million improvisation concerts and it's just very comfortable to go wherever um, so I sort of don't really for myself uh, that that's one of the things I worry about least is where am I going to end up harmonically uh, but that's after having thought about it and wrestled with it a lot so in teaching yes um, the main thing I would teach is first of all for absolute beginners if you're in major you got to get to the dominant and back to make a little piece, right? There's almost no music that just stays in, in the home key. You gotta at least say hello to the to the dominant. And and once you do you high five the dominant, then you can go home. 
Um, (laughs) And and so we work on that. And what what are the different ways, uh, you know, if we use a descending sequence, you know, we look for the scale mutation. Um, And and again, it's not about root motion, actually. Um, It's it's more about scale mutation. Um, But for more advanced players, I would start to introduce the idea of the five closely related keys. So that's the relative plus everything with one more or less accidental. And that adds up to five keys. So I just did a video yesterday, for example, I had a question from a student on Improv Planet about from rule of the octave, like how, how when you're just going up and down in RO, how do you get out of there to other places? So I just went through major and minor RO and showed all these different ways of getting to all the related keys. Uh, and then after that, you know, there are certain really bold things like um, Handel might do this in a in a arpeggiated fantasia. He might show just how crazy he can get with these audacious moves. Or there's a great one by Padre Martini um, where the motion is uh, it has to start on one obviously, but he gets to a four two with a tritone. And, and the bass is falling chromatically, and it's alternating four twos and fully diminished and falling chromatically. So that motion I just called the martini, right? And, and <laughs> so, and, and, it's, and it's always the same. It's totally sequential, so it doesn't really force you toward any key center. You can go as far as you want. Yeah, and, and then you can resolve. You can, you know how you can get out of a diminished any, any old way you want. Um, so those for people who want to really go nuts and go to distant key areas that's a good one you can just do like a cadenza with falling diminished chords like like an organ cadenza Um, you of course can use uh, c5 circle of fifths uh, either diatonically or chromatically with perfect fifths and get off that merry-go-round at any station you know get off that um, stuff you guys all know the thing is, though, is, is uh, the more options you give, the more everybody screws up and uh, gets lost. And so <laughs> pedagogically, one is constantly saying, whoa, 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 L- let's stay within what you can do really well. Okay, let's only build up as high as is stable. Okay, so and if it starts wobbling like this probably something down low is is not really square you know the bricks are not actually in there so let's go back down there and let's sand that and you know make sure it really fits so that actually pedagogically is more of a priority than telling them all these amazing super tricks sure uh, it's more mm-hmm. important just to say yeah, actually your ro sucks and you you have to go back and review that you know <laughs> that's usually what the case right is. yeah yeah don't you can't walk yeah. before you run I was I was playing around with some of the sequences in the book, and I ended up being in a place where I'm not sure even sure where I was, and it was I was no longer kind of operating under common practice harmonic rules anymore. When you um, started improvising in this style, was there a did you ever find yourself doing things that were historically uh, anachronistic? I suppose you know. Uh, certainly not adding a major seventh. Well, actually, Bach does add a lot of major sevenths to his things. Um, but were there ever times where you kind of felt, found yourself falling out of um, the kind of um, historical musical style? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, because I speak languages that don't didn't exist in the time of the 18th century that are native to me. And so mm-hmm. I, I default into those languages very quickly. The, the biggest one is unprepared dissonances. And again, when, when you are a, an on-page musician and your, your music making consists of reciting things that are on the page, y- you can play very beautifully. Uh, and, and maybe one professor even got you to be really concerned about tied notes and hearing the ties and you know, things that the piano needs. Um, but you don't really know why from, from, from the perspective of someone who creates music that those dissonances prepared and resolved correctly are like the the driving engine of the sound of the 18th century. Uh, I like to think of them as love potions. You know, they're they're powerful, but they're dangerous if misused. And the quickest way, you know, you can be playing something and it's all like really nice 18th century. Here's a little prelude, da-da-da-da-da. All you have to do is hit an unprepared seventh 
not on the dominant because that was kind of uh, in discussion, but like a minor seven chord, like a like a four chord with a minor seventh. That's on. I have to do that, and it's like, boom, early Debussy. Instantly, instantly, it's like putting the wrong ingredient in your food, and instantly it tastes some, like something else. Um, so, you know that. Yeah, that's a huge deal. Especially, you know, I didn't grow up in the 18th century. I, you know, this is not native to me. So I have to uh, think about how to sound, and I have to listen to a lot of stuff. On the other hand, the beauty of the Partimento system is that when you study it, it builds in the voice leading from the beginning. Uh, so what I like to say is, you know, the reason I don't accidentally tie my shoes together in the morning is because I don't practice tying my shoes together in the morning. It's just not a part of what I ever practice. I always tie them separately, you know. So I, I never like inadvertently <laughs> tied my shoes together and then tried, oh, no, not again. You know, why would you do that? Um, like like sh like a pianist Shura Tcherkovsky used to say, I, I don't play that many wrong notes in concerts because I don't practice wrong notes. Um, they're just not a part of it. <laughs> And so what Partimento does is it forms habits of voice leading uh, that you then default to and draw upon when you're playing. And so actually, I, I mean, one of the biggest surprises to me of this whole good, wonderful adventure has been how rarely I play real stinker voice leading mistakes in concert. Um, I do it occasionally. Um, you know, I've caught myself like, oh, crap, that was parallel octaves. Um, but almost never, just because I don't, you know, I don't tie my shoes together. I don't practice parallel octaves. I don't practice parallel octaves. So they're not, they're not in here waiting to get out. Yeah. Um, so it's actually less, mm -hmm. that, that is not at all the biggest issue in this. Everyone thinks it is. Like, How do you keep from doing it? Because I, I did my theory paper and I had red ink because my tenor and my alto were... Ugh. And how do you manage, you know, your mind must be a supercomputer. It's not like that at all. Um, I don't accidentally start speaking uh, Mandarin when I'm having a casual conversation because I, I don't ever practice that. I don't, so I don't stumble into it. So anyway, that, that actually is, is the, probably the least of one's problems. Have you ever been performing improvisation and it's gone awry? It's gone badly um uh, yeah that's sure. the fear right that's what people are afraid yeah. of um you know i've felt like something was a dud a few times and then i hear the playback and i'm like i don't love it but actually it's almost never terrible really I, i've been very very surprised because i have felt stupid and felt at a loss um, and usually when that happens, you know, one defaults to some uh, emergency thing that you just know how to do. And actually, they work surprisingly well. They just they sound like normal music and it sounds like nothing's wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so I've been mm -hmm. surprised a number of times about that. Um, the biggest problem, you know, if you, you really want to play a lot in public and, and improvise, the, the problem is... Um, just loading your mind with enough different ideas so that you don't just start sounding the same. When I was in, initially figuring out how this worked, I went up to Eastman to a wonderful summer institute that was run by my friend John Andrew Sleminski, who's currently at um, Linfield College in Oregon. I've kept in touch with him a little bit. He's a brilliant guy. I think he's the youngest guy ever to get a DMA from Eastman or something like that. Anyway, he's this genius boy. Uh, and he, he was improvising in a kind of gallant style doing these sonatas and, and he was telling me about his strategies I said so dude you know how many of these do you play until they start sounding the same and he said well you know not that many you know because I have these strategies that I keep relying on and I can vary it but after you know a handful of sonatas you're, you're going to start to see my template you're, you're going you're gonna to see my template so that's the real challenge is you, you have to keep reloading your mind with new ideas. Um, and, and usually I'll do that in the, in the, like, okay, what's an overture? 
how do you do an overture? Well, it's the slow part with all these tiradas and dotted rhythms and energy and you know drama and stuff. And then there's a fast kind of quasi-fugue thing in the middle, usually in compound meter of some kind. And then it recapitulates. So it's a little ABA thing. All right. Um, let's practice a bunch of tiradas and dotted rhythms and things like that. Now let's practice some fugue stuff. Now let's play 10 overtures. Okay, I think I just about wore that out. And now the 11th one sounds a lot like these others. So okay, back to the piano and start thinking about something else. So that's actually the challenge is uh, hmm. we always sound like ourselves. Like we always do, no matter what. I got this friend in L.A. He's a really good musician. He's a jazz pianist. And he says, I thought I've had good and bad days recording, but actually I hear it later and I just always sound like me. Um, <clears throat> so, <laughs> so we always sound like ourselves, but the, the challenge is yeah. to, to have at least a little variety in, and growth over time in what it means to sound like ourselves and not just stay within this comfortable little thing. Hmm. Well, this is so fascinating, and we could certainly talk for a lot longer about this, but we, we yeah. promised that we would have you done within okay. an hour or so. Um, so we're going to wrap up, but first, um, we have some rapid-fire okay. questions. So these are questions I actually do right, not give great. you. All right, so these are just yeah. off the cuff, all right? You don't have to um, defend them at all, okay. okay? So just your hot takes on uh, these. So I'll, I'll start, and <laughs> this is probably coming from my... Um, baggage as a pianist um this question um should pianists especially college students be expected to memorize an entire recital's worth no. of music because most of them only the ones that are going to uh, a grad school in performance actually have to be great memorizers everybody else is going to teach and accompany and do the rest of this memorization is not going to play that big of a role in their lives they're better off playing more music more variety with less anxiety. Oh, that's great. More variety, less anxiety. Oh, <laughs> I love it. Here, here. <laughs> that's so good. All right. Um, so just as we've been talking, I've heard so many things that I'm like, that transfers directly to the theory classroom. So most of our listeners are music yeah. theory nerds yeah. like we are. What is one thing from all of this work that you've done that you think is a perfect transfer. What should we be teaching in theory two yeah. or three or whatever that would help with this skill? Uh, go from whatever, 80% paperwork or whatever to like 20% paperwork, play and sing and improvise in class. If I could run everything, mm -hmm. piano, secondary piano class and theory and oral skills would be one giant, like seven or 10 credit thing. Um, that would be more than half of just, it would be just making music in class. So today we're doing scales. So mm -hmm. we're going to sing a scale. And then you guys improvise by finding thirds and sixths above each moving note of that. Okay. Now we go to minor thirds and sixths. Okay. Now we have parallel tenths and somebody else find these intervals. And um, okay, now bring in your instrument and we're going to play divisions on the ground. And now we're going to do this. Um, because I, I just have this sneaking suspicion, including from my own life, that theory students retain a tiny, tiny fraction of what they do analytically on paper. I, I just don't think it works. I don't think theory class works. Hmm. <laughs> That's a hot take. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've had that sneaking sus suspicion yeah. myself. I'm always looking yeah. for ways to yeah. make it practical and to make it better. That's part of the reason why we're doing this. It's been one of yes. the best parts of 2020 yeah. has been these conversations about how to be better at what we do yeah. every day. Yeah, so. every day. I don't think it's, you know, next year we're gonna come back no, and say, now we no. figured it out. You no. know, I, think, I think it's gonna be a process that always sure. requires refining all the way down to the foundation, like, yeah. you, like you mentioned earlier. So kind of piggybacking on that, my question was gonna be, you know, when we're, in our curricular redos and we're polishing and we're uh, inserting all these new and great things, what is something that we need to take out? In your, in your opinion, what is the number one most important thing that we need to not have in order to kind of um, open up space to do other things? Fourth semester serialism and set theory. Total waste of time for today's musician. <laughs> If they want to learn about it, they they have time in their life later. But it's uh, you know ugly, weird horror movie music most people hate. Um, 
And why would you even want to know what a set was if you can't even hear and identify a circle of fifths? Like, why? So there's my take. Awesome. Yeah, and I mean, the circle of fifths isn't just a yeah. The circle of fifths isn't just a classical music thing. It shows up in all kinds of music: pop music, jazz. I mean, everything they're gonna do. That's a critical one. So yeah. Totally. Awesome. So as we wrap up, can you just um, let us know, or let our listeners know um, what your projects are? You know, we have you have this new book, or I guess it's within the past year, right? Yeah, uh, it's from. I think up? it came out in May. Yeah. So the pianist guide to historic improvisation. So, um, what else are you working on? <laughs> and um, not that writing a book isn't enough. Um, and uh, where can where can people find you? You mentioned a little bit about your. Um, uh, YouTube channel and also your uh, website. So how can people reach out to you if they want to learn more about this? Uh, just through my website, johnmortensen.com. Um, everything else I do is kind of linked to from there. Um, most recent projects, I actually have a, I'm releasing an album in a couple of days. I'm just doing it digitally because again, CDs are dead. And these are all live, unedited concert improvisations from the last couple of years in US and Europe. Um, uh, so actually, super easy to do you know you just <laughs> upload things and hit release and you're done um so anyway that that'll be out on i think the only way to get it is streaming services um i'm working on another book i've i'm wrestling with what it's really about the the idea is um i really wanted to do a comprehensive approach to how to improvise fugue like what you actually have to go through practically to be able to do this in front of people and not sound like an idiot. Like, what, what do you have to do? So the ramp up to that is partimento and bass motions. Um, but then I'm maybe thinking of expanding it into just like concert improvisations. What do you, what do you have to know to get polished enough where, where you can actually walk out on stage and, and um, uh, survive? So that's, that's in process. Um, it also, it's a very, very deep dive into Partimento and, and how I teach it and how I work on it myself. I did a little in, in Piano Sky. Um, I'm, getting, I'm getting a lot of requests for people to, uh, who want to know about what about improvising in romantic style? So I'm just kicking around what that would really mean when style becomes super individualistic. Like mm. Chopin is mm. Chopin, Schubert is Schubert. There's no mistaking. Um, what does it mean to improvise even in that style? Um, we're working on developing an international festival in Denmark, probably going to start in the summer of 2022, uh, and it will be a teaching festival with uh, live concerts and faculty from U.S. and Europe um, in cooperation with a wonderful student of mine in, um, in Aarhus, Denmark. Uh, residency at University of British Columbia coming up. And then, uh, I don't know, some other stuff. So that's probably enough. <laughs> Stay busy. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. We'll be back with more interviews with professors and teachers who will be dropping all sorts of theory knowledge for your education, edification, and enjoyment. So until then, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>